Good morning. I'm going to read this morning, uh, continue where I left off. I was on page 29 in second chapter. And that American Marxism summary of what we read so far is we looked at these uh, philosophers, including Marx, who have had such a big influence on colleges and why people want this uh, egalitarian paradise. So let me continue here. So consequently, groups are dominated and oppressed by looking at societies and the culture's structural and historical prejudices and inequalities and the effect on their political influence. Morris declares that groups' interests become paramount because systems of domination have no meaning outside the accumulation and defense of such interests. The task of precisely identifying the groups who benefit from such a system is complex because several groups usually benefit, although unequally. An important task, therefore, is to establish the relative positions of privilege enjoyed by groups hierarchically, hierarchically. I will circle that word. This is another one I am not able to pronounce, so I need to go back and practice it. A lot of my words that I have written down uh, are actually not as difficult as I thought. They're just difficult for me to pronounce because I haven't used them in the past. So hierarchically, hierarchically positioned within systems of domination. And to show how such relative positions affect their political consciousness. In this approach, scholarly attention is directed squarely toward the long-standing cleavages within the society and the structural preconditions, threats of violence, polity memberships, economic resources such as the control of jobs and so on inherent to systems of domination that enable certain groups to rule. By the same token, attention is focused on the structural preconditions, networks of communications, formal and informal social social organization, availability of leadership, financial resources, and so on, central to effective and sustained protest by oppressed group. Let me reread that again without the stuff in parentheses. By the same token, attention is focused on the structural preconditions central to effective and sustained protest by oppressed groups. Given the injustices, prejudices, and inequality imposed by society's dominant groups against oppressed groups, the oppressed groups must awaken 
to their inferior status. Become politically aware and then rise up in protest and even revolution against the existing society. Morris argues, my approach directs attention to culture, political consciousness. Such consciousness is also analyzed within the context of major social cleavages and systems of domination. Both dominant and oppressed groups have long-standing traditions of political consciousness. Hegemonic consciousness is always present, but often unrecognized because of its ability to successfully masquerade as a general outlook while simultaneously protecting the interest of dominant groups. So I will also circle hegemonic, because I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. But effective social protest informed by a mature oppositional consciousness enables challenging groups to strip away the garments of universality, universality, universality. There's another one I'm not able to pronounce properly. From hegemonic consciousness. Revealing its essential characteristics. So there seems to be two kinds of consciousness here. And I will look up both of them and hopefully comment on it later. This is precisely what the modern civil rights movement accomplished in South forcing the nation to decide publicly on the world stage whether it would continue to be guided by blatant white supremacy ideology. The oppressed must be encouraged to rise up and join in protest and even revolution. Oppositional consciousness, explains Morris, often lies dormant within the institutions, lifestyles, and culture of oppressed groups. Members of such groups are usually not without basic, basic collective identities, injustice frames, and the like, that are conductive to individual and collective social protest. Morris contends that the seeds of oppositional protest and revolution already exist in oppressed community communities, which makes possible the birth of new and more effective forms of collective activism. Cultural phenomena are not reductible simply by organization and structural dynamics. Indeed, varied forms of oppositional consciousness are important precisely because they are able to survive under the most adverse structural conditions. In many ways, oppressed communities nurture oppositional ideas during intense periods of repression, thereby creating the social and cultural space for the emergence of more favorable structural conditions conductive to collective action. Moreover, much can be learned 
from the experiences of successful combat-ready oppositional protests, that is, veterans of protest movements that help spread and sustain activism. Morris writes, combat-ready oppositional consciousness can have an independent effect on structural detrimirants. I'm going to circle that one. Structural detriments of collective actions. Once a successful instance of protest has occurred, it affects collection action in two ways. It provides two activists, two activists who participated directly with an understanding of how it happened and why it worked, and it attracts other non-participants who wish to internalize these lessons so as to transplant the model to other locales, thereby increasing the volume of collective action. Thus, both sets of actors become cultural workers who become cultural workers for the movement by further hammering out the set of viewpoints that previously lay dormant within the historic oppositional consciousness, making them relevant for contemporary hey. scene. Hey. In the manner these viewpoints become the defining ideas about how to initiate and sustain social protests. Well, it sounds like this Morris guy is definitely somebody that has stirred up people to do this stuff. I'm not sure what you would call him, but if he's he's instigating riots, then I would call him a traitor. Ultimately, these arguments for collective identity, collective beliefs, and class consciousness in support of mass movements, wittingly or otherwise, have a Marxist formulation. Mm, that sounds right, and form the bias, not only for peaceful protests, oh, and form the basis, not only for peaceful protests, but violence, riots, and revolution. For the sort we have seen in our streets and towns, with the likes of Antifa, BL BLM, and other violent radical groups, in fact, they attempt to provide the veneer of an ex expertise of scholarly approach or scholarly approach. In fact, they attempt to provide the veneer of an expertise or scholarly approach to societal disruption the undermining of civil institutions, and flat-out rebellion. Professor Francis Fox Piven and the late Richard A. Cloward wrote less about social movement theory and more extensively and openly in support of militant uprising. And they were more forthright and detailed than many others in their prescriptions for using activism to develop disruption, 
create crisis, collapse institutions, and excite riots as legitimate and necessary to transform society. Therefore, giving their extensive writings an influence on radical and even violent revolutionary strategies, they require more substantial exposition here. In 1966, the professors wrote what is considered by radical activists a seminal essay in the far-left nation entitled The Weight of the Poor, a strategy to end poverty focused on race and poverty. They bluntly stated their intention, it is our purpose to advance a strategy which affords the basis for a convergence of civil rights organizations, militant anti-poverty groups, and the poor. If this strategy were implemented, a political crisis would result that could lead the legislation for a guaranteed annual income and thus an end to poverty. The pair laid the predicate by arguing that welfare is a right. The welfare payments recipients receive are less than what they are entitled to, and efforts to reduce the welfare rolls are an assault on the well-being of the poor and minorities. They contend that more people should enter the system, indeed flooded and those in the system should demand more benefits to which they are entitled. This would create a major societal crisis. Piven and Cloward wrote that the vast discrepancy exists between the benefits to which people are entitled under the public welfare programs and the sums which they actually receive. This gulf is not recognized in a society that is woolly and self-righteously oriented toward getting people off the welfare rolls. This discrepancy is not an accident stemming from bureaucratic inefficiency. Rather, it is an integral feature of the welfare system which, if challenged, would precipitate a profound financial and political crisis. The force for that challenge and the strategy we propose is a massive drive to recruit the poor onto the welfare rolls. Piven and Cloward also argued that in certain past periods the Democratic Party was the political institution through which radical change was realized as a result of economic crises, and that the party must again be targeted and effectively hijacked for such purposes. Moreover, the reforms were also instituted to build and strengthen a new democratic coalition. The legislative reforms of the Depression years, for example, were impelled not so much by organized interests 
exercised through regular and electoral processes is by widespread economic crisis. That crisis precipitated the disruption of the regionally-based coalitions underlying the old national parties. During the realignments of 1932, a new democratic coalition was formed, based heavily on urban working-class groups. Once in power, the national democratic leadership proposed and implemented the economic reforms of the New Deal. Although these measures were a response to the imperative of economic crisis, the types of measures enacted were designed to secure and stabilize the new democratic coalition. For Piven and Cloward, revolution is tied at least in part to a radicalized black communities influencing and tied to the Democratic Party. In the face of such crises, urban political leaders may well be paralyzed by a party apparatus which ties them to older constituent groups, even while the ranks of these groups are diminishing. The national democratic leadership, however, is alert to the importance of an urban Negro vote, especially in national contests where the loyalty of such urban groups is weakening. Indeed, many of the legislative reforms of the great society can be understood as efforts, however, feeble to reinforce the alliance of growing ghetto consti constituencies to the National Democratic Administration. Indeed, today, the alliance of the black community to the Democratic Party is overwhelming, and a similar strategy is playing out with respect to the Hispanic and Asian communities. In 1968, Piven and Cloward also wrote of movements in the census politics, explicitly arguing that, among other things, incendarism, incendiarism, and riots are legitimate and necessary acts of mass movements. They declared that poor people win mainly when they immobilize in disruptive protests for the obvious reasons that they lack the resources to exert influence in conventional ways, such as forming organizations, petitioning, lobbying, influencing the media, and buying politicians. By disruptive protests, we mean acts such as incendiarism, I'm, of course, circling these words that I'm not sure on how to pronounce, and hopefully I will learn how to pronounce them, and if it comes up again, or if I do choose to reread everything, hopefully they will sound correct then. So by disruptive protest, we mean acts of, acts as such incendiarism, riots, sit-ins, and other forms of civil disobedience 
great surges in demands for relief benefits, rent strikes, wildcat strikes, or obstructing production on assembly lines. The goal is to force the weakening of the system, or as they call it, the regime, making it vulnerable to the movement's demands. Mass disruption, both its emergence and its successes, is closely related to electoral politics when the regime is insecure. It is more likely to bargain actively for support and may then issue appeals which signal its vulnerability to demands for the bottom, from the bottom, excuse me. It is more likely to bargain actively for support and may then issue appeals which signal its vulnerability to demands from the bottom. Social movements thrive on conflict, wrote Piven and Cloward. By contrast, electoral politics demands strategies of consensus and coalition. Movements have the impact they do on electoral politics, mainly because the issues they raise and the strife they generate widen cleavages, cleavages among other voter groups. We call this the census politics. To differentiate it from the usual process of building electoral influence by recruiting adherents and assembling coalitions, and, or what might be called consensus politics. Movements are not likely to have much impact unless economic and social conditions are already eroding established electoral alliances and coalitions. But then it is also the case that significant change-oriented movements are not likely to emerge except during periods of economic and social instability. If this seems familiar, it is. This strategy is also largely played out in America's streets and politics. As Antifa, BLM, and other Marxist anarchist groups exploited both the initial economic collapse due to the coronavirus and the death of George Floyd. These groups and others have been key in fomenting violent rioting, mostly, but not exclusively, in the inner cities. Militant confrontations with law enforcement, the destruction of public monuments and targeting of federal courthouse and the White House, occupying parts of cities, and assaulting and threatening citizens at restaurants and other public places. Piven and Cloward also see opportunity in the transformation of the Democratic Party. The discontinuities, the discontinuities between social experience and electoral politics 
that result from a static party may well set the stage for realignment and signs of electoral discontent may even prompt some rhetorical shifts in campaign appeals by major party operatives. Indeed, this transformation occurred during the last election cycle where the leadership of the Democratic Party was reluctant to criticize the violent revolutionary movements and indeed frequently disparaged efforts to control them. Furthermore, with the Democratic Party, there is a growing alliance to these movements and their causes. As Piven Cloward had hoped, which is reflected in part by the party's rhetorical and political radicalization, including the Biden-Sanders 110-page unity agenda released during the campaign and the slew of executive orders and legislative initiatives. Moreover, there is clearly a growing radicalization of the party's elected membership, including the likes of the so-called squad members, representatives Alexandria or Casio Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Ayana Presley, Rashida Tlaib. But for Piven and Cloward, still more is required, and the pace must quicken. The professors argue that the progress of mass movements will always be too slow as the American system is too difficult to mold into a truly revolutionary force. However, there will be opportunities to use the system against the system and to create turmoil from within and without, bringing pressure for revolutionary change. Still, overall, political leaders remain timid and conservative trying to suppress the political for a realignment by bridging potential cleavages with general symbols and vague promises. Under these confusing conditions, discontent voters may be as atomized and ineffective as all voters are said to be in the absence of parties. Social activists must be prepared to abandon the political parties as another way of putting pressure on them. Just as people have to be mobilized to support parties and the issues and candidates they put forward, they declare. So do they have to be mobilized to desert them. Social movements are often the mobilizers of disaffection. In particular, social movements are politically effective precisely when they mobilize electoral disaffection. Nonetheless, the duet proclaim 
that the party system is problematic and that even the losing party retains some power, blunting or slowing revolutionary progress. A fragmented governmental system in the United States means, in the United States means that the oppressed opposition party usually continues to control some part of the government apparatus. And so it is itself constrained by the need to hold together a majority by promoting consensus. Consequently, there is a need for constant upheaval to bring pressure for change. Piven and Cloward write that since political parties seek consensus, there will always be cleavages and disco discordant issues between and among groups that should be exploited by social activists. To appreciate the role of social movements in helping the helping to precipitate electoral convulsion and realignment we have to pay attention to the distinctive dynamics of social movements that enable them to do what party politicians do not do. Social movements, even movements that are not particularly disruptive, can do what party leaders and contenders for office in a two-party system will not do. They can raise deeply diversive issues. In fact, social movements thrive on the drama and urgency of solidarity that result from raising diversive issues. In conf if conflict is deadly to the strategy of a party trying to build a majority coalition, it is the very stuff that makes social movements grow. Hence, as we see today, the sprawling of numerous movements based on, for example, race, gender, income equality, and environmental justices, etc. Again, when economic conditions have weakened, causing social conditions to do the same, the political system is said to be ripe for transformation. Social movements tend to emerge at moments when the electoral system itself signals the emergence of a new political of new political conflicts. Signs of increased volatility, volatility, volatility appear in electoral politics. Signs of increased volatility appear in electrical politics, usually traceable to changes in the economy or social life that generate new discontents or encourage new aspiration. The evidence of voter volatility in turn may prompt party leaders to do what they characteristically do to attempt to hold together their coalition. Only now, they will employ more expansive rhetoric. 
acknowledging grievances among their constituents that are ordinarily ignored or naming and thus perhaps fueling the aspirations that are only beginning to emerge. Even the threat of defections that jeopardize a majority can prompt electoral leaders to make pronouncements that contribute to the climate of change and possibility that nourish movements. Indeed, the coronavirus pandemic and the shutting down of our economy, schools, and social activities and the collective economic and psychological effects on our society created an environment ripe for exploration. Exploitation. Exploitation. Exploitation, yes. And that exploitation has occurred both in the halls of power with far-reaching legislative and executive actions. And in the streets where organized violence is becoming all too common. Having created conflict and strife, the movements must control the narrative. Piven and Cloward explained, politicians are not the only communicators. The conflicts that movements generate often lead them considerable communicative force. The conflicts that movements generate often lead them considerable communicative tiff, communicative force. This is no small thing. Ordinarily, political communication is dominated by political leaders and the mass media, who together define the parameters of the political universe, including understandings of which sorts of problems should probably be prob properly, properly be considered political problems and which sorts of remedies are available. It is hard to dispute the monopoly by the powerful or on public and political communication, at least in the absence of movements. Movements can break that monopoly, at least for a brief moment. Movements mount marches and rallies, strikes and sit-ins, the rat theoretical and sometimes violent confrontation. The inflammation rhetoric and dramatic representation of collective indignation associated with these tactics project new definitions of social reality or definitions of social reality of new groups into public discourse. They change understandings not only of what is real, but of what is possible and of what is just. As a result, grievances that are otherwise naturalized or submerged become political issues. For example, BLM has succeeded hugely in controlling the narrative time and again 
violent confrontations with police are said by the media to be mostly peaceful protests. Looting is all but ignored and certainly tolerated, driving the narrative and creating new divisions are key ingredients in expanding and further empowering revolutionary movements. Movements raise new issues, right, Piven and Cloward, and when new issues take center stage in politics, the balance of political forces changes in two ways. First, by raising new issues or articulating latent issues, movements activate groups that might otherwise remain inactive. Second, new issues are likely to create new cleavages with far-reaching consequences for the balance between contending forces. Cleavages are what electoral politicians seek to avoid, but they are the key to understanding the impact of movements on electoral politics and in particular to understanding why movements sometimes win victories. Moreover, hitherto, moderate or reluctant moderate or reluctant politicians can be pressured into accommodating and embracing radical movements if their own political survival is at stake. The professors explained that movements wrest concessions from reluctant political leaders when concessions are seen as a way to avert threatened disaffections or to staunch the flow of defections already occurring or sometimes when concessions are viewed as a way to rebuild an already fragmented coalition by enlarging or solidifying support from one side of the cleavage line. Recently, Piven returned to the Nation magazine to specifically take aim at stopping Trump, whom she in the vast majority of academia loathe, of course. In her 2017 article titled Throw Sand in the Gears of Everything, Piven wrote, in part, what makes movements a force when they are a force? It is the deployment of a distinctive power that arises from the ability of angry and indignant people to at times defy the rules that usually ensure the cooperation and quintessence. Movements can mobilize people to refuse to disobey and effect a strike. In other words, people in motion, in movements, can throw sand in the gears of the institutions that depend on their cooperation. It is therefore, it therefore follows that movements need numbers, but they also need a strategy that maps the impact of their defiance. In the ensuing disruptions, 
on the authority of decision makers by blocking or sabotaging the policy initiatives of a regime. Resistance movements can <coughs> create or deepen elite and electrical cleavages. Once again, form and activate a violent mob, creates societal fissures, fissures, attack racial and economic institutions, undermine civic life and social associations, etc. In other words, use the freedom secured by the Constitution to attack that which the Constitution is intended to protect, particularly ready for unrest, piven po posists are the large cities with their leftist mayors. Indeed, events have rolled out as Piven encouraged, with Antifa and BLM followers, among others, rioting in the left-wing Democratic mayors who run these cities, tolerating most of it. Piven declared the repercussions of such mass refusals can be far-reaching. Simply because social life depends on systems of intricate cooperation, so does our system of governments. Perhaps the U.S. government, with its famous separation of powers on the national level and its decentralized federal structure, is especially vulnerable to collective defiance. I would say Piven is definitely a traitor to this country. She needs to be indicted for that. She is, now that I know that she is a woman and she's alive, my goodness, shame on her. The big cities where the majority of the population lives have not been captured by the right wing. Center-left mayors preside over cities like New York, Los Angeles, Boston, Seattle, San Francisco, for example. And that fact can nourish urban resistance movements. More recently, as if leading a resistance movement herself against President Trump and his supporters, this senior citizen revolutionary insisted that mass action must be taken immediately against them. Resistance movements are hard. They must mobilize defiant collective action against what seem formidable odds, and they risk triggering tough reprisals. Moreover, they often operate in the dark, not knowing the weak points of the regime they confront or the strains among its allies allies. This describes our own situation. We don't really know much about the potential fissures among this parade of groups and individuals that Trump is inviting into the national government, but we do know something about the political dangers of a Trump administration that is allowed to move forward without mass resistance. If addressing Piven 
and the literally hundreds of like-minded revolutionaries populating our college and university facilities, the late philosopher and professor Alan Bloom wrote in his 1987 book, The Closing of the American Mind, that very educational system has a moral goal that it tries to attain and that informs its curriculum. It wants to produce a certain kind of human being. This intention is more or less explicit, more or less a result of reflection, but even the neutral subjects like reading and writing and arithmetic take their place in a vision of educated person. Democratic education wants and needs to produce men and women who are supportive of a democratic regime. Bloom warned that we have a culture in which to root education, but we have begun to undermine it. The idealism of the American founding has been explained away by mythical, selfishly motivated and racist. The idealism of American founding has been explained away as mythical, selfishly motivated and racist. And so our culture has been devalued. Nobody believes that the old, that the old books do or even could contain the truth. Tradition has become superfluous. Indeed, America's college and university faculties have turned their classrooms into breeding grounds for resistance, rebellions, and revolution against American society, as well as receptors for Marxist or Marxist-like indoctrination and propaganda. Academic freedom exists first and foremost for the militant professors, and the competition of ideas is mostly a quaint concept of what higher education used to be and should be. But Marxism is not about free speech and debate. It is about domination, repression, indoctrination, conformity, and compliance. The existing society and culture and those who prosper within it intellectually, spiritually, and economically, as well as those who defend it, must be denounced and defamed. Disillusion with the status quo is key. Marxism presents the new faith, if you will, which promises a new and better society for which a passion, if not obsession, is in inoculated in future generations. Despite its trial of math, mass death, enslavement, and impoverishment. Well, that's the end of the second chapter. So, um, I guess as homework, we should really look up who this Piven person is. P-I-V-E-N. At first, it, when, they, when he was talking about Cloven and Piven, I wasn't sure if Piven was a man. I thought he was a man, but 
Piven is obviously a female that's alive and well, a senior citizen, somebody that is, uh, is from academia. So um, we will look up Piven and take a look at what this person is about. huh? Boy, she certainly has led people. Oh, her name is Frances Fox Piven. Professor Frances Fox Piven. And the late Richard A. Cloward. So Professor Frances Fox Piven is still alive. And she has left this kind of legacy among our youth. And this is second, third generation now. And um, we're happy to hear that we learned about her and Cloward in detail. So the next chapter will be chapter three, and it is entitled Hate America, Inc. So um, we will look at that later, and I'm taking a break. So as you can see, I'm doing somewhat better with the words and... Uh, I am not afraid of a little bit of difficulty, and I did circle a few words in, in the rest of that chapter, and I will add them to my list. I started a list, and I'm looking up the list, and if I'm in doubt of how the word is pronounced, I put it in my search engine, and there is an actual pronunciation program that pronounces it for me. And so far, I've learned the word egalitarian, 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 egalitarian. I think that's how she said that. So, satiated, corporate, I should really do it again because it's already out of sight, out of mind. So I will do it again. Um, I have a whole list of words that still I'm going to have to write how they sound. They have different uh, pronunciations, that's for sure, like satiated, satiated. Uh, that's the only one that I really remembered. The rest of them, I'm going to have to reiterate them. I'm going to have to redo it, re, re-listen to it. So... Being not being college educated may have something to do with it. I'm not sure if college educated people can all use these words and pronounce them accurately. Good chance. Uh, I guess I'll find out. Thank you for listening. And yes, the book is very interesting. And we will go to chapter three next. But I will close with this. And Tomorrow is Shabbat, so today is our preparation day. Everything is being prepared for a day off. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. Grandma B, over and out.